Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, here we are, episode five. Um, did you think we'd get this far, Dustin? I still don't think we're this far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll call it 4.5 for you then. 4.5, no, yeah. <laughs> episode five of the We Were Young podcast special hat today this is actually the apache troop uh was this your guys's official logo uh glenn or kind of unofficial yeah for the entire well for the first and ninth cavalry regiment yeah that's the official one All right. first squadron ninth cavalry thank you to uh daryl and julie price who gave us this hat in louisiana i love this hat because <laughs> you'll like this glenn dustin was wearing it that night when we went out to dinner and there was a couple uh, guys looked like they were from Fort Polk or uh, got out of the military. And they walked up to him and they're like, so you're one nine, huh? And I was thinking, oh, snap, we're about to get some publicity on the Internet. <laughs> but he explained what we were doing for the documentary and we all we all left friends. Yeah, it turned out really well, actually. Those guys started off with, I'm going to kick your ass and ended with, oh, we'll check it out. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's the way it usually goes. <laughs> um, but for today's guest, um, he was in Vietnam for 18 months, 1969 to 1970, aircraft commander on a lift ship with Apache Troop, first of the ninth, uh, after getting out of, uh, uh, successfully returning home from Vietnam, <laughs> uh, worked in industrial advertising, uh, got a college degree and went into, you said, business development. Right. With well, uh, the likes and, of small private companies like Boeing um, <laughs> and is now happily retired. Uh, please welcome Glenn Sinkowski. I got your last name. I should have checked that, but Sinkowski for great. you. Thank All you. All right. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Glenn, and, and agreeing to do it. We really appreciate having you on. So I... I'm going to be a good co-host to my partner in crime, Dustin, and, and let you start off, Dustin. Oh, hey, thanks. That's really nice of you. <laughs> a benevolent human being. <laughs> uh, Glenn, how did you um, how did you end up uh, in Vietnam, and how did you end up uh, once there in Apache Troop? Well, uh, you were cutting out on me a little bit up in the front there. Can you say that again? Sure, sure. How did you how did you end up in Vietnam, and uh, how did you get to Apache Troop? Well, I actually volunteered for Vietnam. Um, I was in college. I didn't belong in college, so I I had always wanted to be a military pilot, and the Army was the only group that was taking pilots that didn't have college degrees. So I wound up going into the Army aviation program and. Then uh, everybody, if you hadn't already done a, one or two tours in Vietnam, you get you got out of helicopter flight school, you went to Vietnam. I mean, that's just the way it was in 69. Just, I think there were 100, 103 people maybe in my 
my unit that graduated and of those 101 went to Vietnam and the other ones had already done pulled tours in Vietnam. So you were, you knew once you graduated from flight school, you were going to Vietnam. So that was a foregone conclusion. No surprises in that. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so, so, and I forgot to ask, so were you a warrant officer or? Yes. Yes, I was. Uh, they, uh, they tried to give me a commission later, but actually probably about six months in country. They wanted to, they were trying to get rid of warrant officers at that time. So they were offering direct commissions. I chose not to do that. Matter of fact, a lot of us chose not to do that. What's, what's the difference? Well, the, what, difference what was the, was, the, the difference was it wasn't that much of an increase in pay and you had a whole lot more responsibilities. Uh, <laughs> that we call them RLOs, real live officers. They yeah. uh, had all sorts of different things that they had to be in charge of where the, the warrants we just flew. Well, so, and when you get to, you know, a high enough warrant officer, two, three, four, it's kind of like the command sergeant majors, right? You have a, a certain level of officers that you don't really listen to anymore. Exactly. <laughs> My hoots mate, Mike, was uh, what he retired out. It finally made him retire as a W-5, and he was flying his last missions in Iraq. <laughs> and that's, that's the unicorn of the military, isn't it, the W-5? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> nice. All right. Um, so how did you, how'd you end up in A Troop? Did they just assign you or? Well, what happened was I uh, flew into Cameron Bay and they came through the barracks while we were, they were going to assign us to our final units once we got into Cameron Bay. And a guy came through the, the barracks saying, anybody want to fly for the first of the ninth? And I said, oh, I do, I do. Because uh, I'd had a, an instructor in flight school that was just telling us all about the war stories of flying in the Asha and things like that. And I said, well, if I'm going to be here, I want to be where the excitement is. So I, I volunteered for the first of the ninth. And at that point, I think it was predominantly voluntary. And... Then once I got into the first and ninth headquarters at Fukin, they just assigned me to A Troop. It reminds me when I went to uh, the academy when I was with Customs the night before I left, I'd gone out to dinner with my dad, and everything was great. And we left the restaurant, and he grabbed me and he said, "Dave, I'm going to give you the best advice I can possibly give you for the academy, and it's what I learned in boot camp: don't volunteer for shit." <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and then I ended up class president. He was very disappointed in me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of describe myself as a serial volunteering person. <laughs> well, I kind of figured I knew the other guy wanted to be class president. I was like, oh, man, we're in trouble. So it is. That's kind of the, the role of the serial volunteer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we actually, as you know from seeing our our um, our previous episodes, we like to talk about um, kind of the first day you were in combat or contact. Uh, a bit different. You're our first uh, air crew that we've talked to, but your first day not only was 
like literally your first day, not just your first contact, your first day, right. it's, you have a, a perspective when Dwayne Blower was on, he said that he was assigned first of the ninth because they just had a really bad day where they'd lost a lot of people. And that was actually, you are a firsthand witness to that day. Um, and I saw your write up on Facebook, a very beautiful, heartfelt write up about that day. Um, can we just ask you, you know, a, what for people who don't know what happened, but also just what it was like for you to to see to see what was going on and, and to be in that. Yeah, I got uh, introduced to the downside early. I'll just say, put it that way. That uh, once again, I volunteered. I was trying. I was trying to get on one of the UEs that was shot down, and then they kicked me off because they had already had a crew full for that one. So then uh, the the scout pilot that was flying the, uh, was covering the uh, the extraction of the blues. I don't know if you want me to go into the whole story or. Wherever you want to go with it. Well, it, I, just a, as a little bit of background, there was a scout bird that had been shot down that morning and everybody scrambled, went out. And uh, like I said, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing because I hadn't been assigned to a platoon yet. So I tried to get on one of the UEs and they, and they kicked me off. And then uh, they put it, sent, took out the blues, put the blues in, they, they secured the loach while the loach got slung out. And then it was time to, to go out and pick up the blues once they got the helicopter out. So when that happened, the white platoon leader came around and said, you want to fly as my observer on this? And I said, oh yeah, because I wanted to get into scouts. So I jumped in uh, to, and I'm, I was just supposed to be flying, you know, flying recon around the PZ while they picked up the, well, Louis, the UE Lushes picked up the blues. So we got out there and uh, that's when it hit the fan. I mean, when we were circling around the, the UEs as they went down to pick up the blues, we did not know at that time that the North Vietnamese had set up an ambush. And the idea being because the blues, as far as I know, hadn't had any contact while they were taking out the downed aircraft. And I, what I surmised was that the North Vietnamese had just gone ahead and set up an ambush rather than taking on the blues. They want, they said, hey, we got a chance here to get some helicopters too. So as the, the blues were coming out, uh, they, what I hear from Andy Anderson was our it was our red platoon leader. He was flying high. And what he said, told me was that they, a B-40 rocket propelled grenade came out of the tree line, hit the number three UE, which rolled over into the number two, and they both went down. And I was looking in the opposite direction when that happened. I just felt this, it's hard to describe. I mean, it's just this thump. You don't really hear anything or see anything. It's just this thud getting hit by a shock wave, I guess is what it is. I looked over and we had two UEs burning on the ground. So uh, I think it was Don Frederick was the pilot on the aircraft I was on and he just immediately landed down between the, the two crashed UEs. And we went out and um, well, I was looking for survivors. I said, I, this was, like I say, this was my first mission and my second day in the troop, and I had, I didn't have a clue, I mean, about what was going on, what I was supposed to be doing. They don't, you know, they don't cover that in training. 
So um, I just got out and followed White on Prairie. He was his, that was his call sign was White, and I followed him, and he found one of the the survivors that had a bad head wound. He said, "Getting back to the to the loach." So I led him back in. Like I say, he he thought he was blind, but he was just it was blood running down his head. So I got him back into the loach, and then I I believe that. Uh, White came back with another guy and put him in the back with the torque. So I think there were two of us, and I got in the front seat, and uh, then we took off to take the the two wounded back to Forty uh, Fifth Surge at Tainan. And then once that was over, there was a whole lot of other things going on. Apparently, two other UEs, um, the lead UE, came back to pick up survivors, and then there was another uh, another. A troop Huey that was out in the area, they call. I think they were doing the mail run, and they came out and picked us. So they got out everybody that was alive, and then it came to us. We had to go back through and fly through the through the area to, you know, do a body count and to see if there was anybody that we missed. And that was my first day. <laughs> and then, but the other, I guess the the fitting, the other, the end of the thing was after we got back to the base and I'm walking in I started I was started limping and I found out I'd been shot and been shot in the leg so it was an exciting first day to say the least just pure adrenaline hadn't you hadn't noticed it yet or yeah exactly that, that's exactly right I was I, I had that happen many times where I'd have I'd have an adrenaline once you start coming down you get the shake so bad I would have to sit there in the helicopter and other times and just because I could my legs were like rubber I think well I don't know I can't speak for everybody but that was fairly usual for me under the, the bad missions yeah, and actually in your write-up you you mentioned um, you were standing in what chest high elephant grass <laughs> and, yeah, and, and yeah. someone had to tell you to, to get down because you were being shot at and you yeah, kind of realized of it's different than the movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was standing there. I, I heard these popping noises and I didn't know what they were. And I don't know how, how uh, colorful you want to get about this, but I had a few of the guys that were laid on the ground tell me, get down, asshole, because they're shooting at us. And I didn't realize <laughs> what those noises were. You know, I was expecting the bang, bang, bang sort of thing, but that wasn't it. That's yeah. not what they sound like. Not quite like when Sylvester Stallone picks up a, a weapon that had just been used from the enemy and suddenly it's twice as loud because he's the hero. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's that's good advice. There's, there's rounds coming in, maybe get down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a very good idea. <laughs> So when you said you got shot, did that come when you were in the helicopter or was that when you were down on the ground or do you I, just... I assume it was when I was on the ground when I heard the rounds going by. And for a long time, I thought it was, it could have also been ammunition cooking off in the UEs at that point. Both of them were fully on fire and everything was going off on the Willie Pete's and the frags and the smoke grenades. And it was a quite a spectacle <laughs> it's something you have to see to really appreciate what's going on but i yeah. you know i'd like to say standing there and have the feeling the ground shaking 
from two helicopters burning. It's uh, well, it's not something I would wish on anybody, but yeah, uh, and it, certainly you, you don't forget it. Yeah, and that's been um, in our test screenings in the film. Um, Doc Del Valle has an incredibly powerful, I mean, he he lays out what a downed helicopter is like and what they saw and it's oh. not it's not a pretty thing to see and it's not a pretty moment in the movie and it's very intentionally not pretty um and we stuck with it the whole way and and don't leave his face um and we've had some people in the in the test screening say why do you have to be so graphic because this is reality yeah, it is yeah it, it's uh doc and all the other blues you know i just i've i've seen a lot of a lot of pictures taken and i just i have a hard time with it i mean to be perfectly honest it's um it's not something that you know because i just for the average person you know it, it just it's pretty horrific when the, when you know those guys you know they were your friends and then I have to, I have to feel, sorry, I have to feel so bad for the blues having to haul them out of there. You know, it's, it's yeah, I, that's what Craig said because yeah. he he went to the fire department and he said it was different because I didn't know them. Yeah, you know, I was just responding yeah, to a yeah, call. That's, that's that's the one thing about that first mission. I didn't know anybody, so and then two weeks later I was doing the same thing for who the person that had become my best friend in the, in the unit. And uh, it's, it's a whole different thing when you actually know the guys that you're pulling out you, and you can't even recognize them except for the fact that they were in the aircraft, you know, earlier. So nobody changed any seats. It was, it's the same guys because you can't tell, it's hard to even tell that they're human. I mean, literally. Yeah, and it's it is one of the things that we've gone back and forth on because it is, you know, we're not doing a, a scripted movie. This is real life, real stories, and, and that's what we fall back on. Like we need people to know. Like this is your guys' truth and we're we'd be doing a disservice if we shied away from that. Well, you know, I admire you for doing this sort of thing because to me I just feel I feel feel like so many people become desensitized by the Hollywood versions of things, and, and you know you don't you don't appreciate you know if that say that's somebody you know that's your best friend, and you just see something like that in the movies and oh boy that's it you know but it, when it's your best friend and it's happening over and over again you know it, it's it's hard to deal with that kind of situation. And I, like I say, with the desensitizing that I see going on, it doesn't do anybody any favors. And when I came back, actually, I would, my mother was a, was a teacher and um, she'd have me come talk to her kids in their sixth grade class. And I'd bring slides like what you're talking about. And I'd show them, I says, these are real people. You know, I knew these people. And it's, you know, it's something that people really need to see and get some empathy for 
the, the guys that do that. You know, like I say, it's a multi-level thing with me. First, I'm losing friends, and then they got the blues that are there having to pull their bodies out of the wreckage, and I just having knowing firsthand what that's like to just have to go do that over and over again. You know, there's a you got the, the feeling for the the guys that died, and then you got the feeling for the blues that had to keep doing that every day. You know, that's and then you gotta wonder why. You know, that's that's the big issue for me is that's been a common refrain too um you know why why did this all happen you know why why can't our governments get along like why why this stretch of land um which probably won't be solved like um but i mean we look at it um Here's a quote from Steven Spielberg I read a long time ago when they asked him about Saving Private Ryan in the opening scene. And again, why was that opening scene to Saving Private Ryan so graphic? And his response was for, in his opinion, um, and I agree with it, um, for any war movie to be a real war movie or a good war movie, in his opinion, it needs to be inherently anti-war. And I know that takes on a different meaning when we talk about Vietnam, but not in the you know, protesting type yeah. of way, but in the way that he would hope people watch it and think, why do we, like, why do we do this? Why do we go to war? And, and that type of, and, and we've kind of held that through. Um, so thank you, Steven Spielberg. I'm sure you're watching this. <laughs> um, but that has informed us. Like, we need to show yeah. the truth of it and let people really think about it. Yeah, I, to- I just... The first time I saw Saving Private Run, I just totally broke down. And I still, I'll at least get teary, <laughs> you know, every time I've seen it many, many times. And it's, even knowing what's coming, it's, it's uh, I don't know if it's cathartic for me or what it is, but, it, you know, I have some, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to describe. The, the part that always gets me, and I think I said it on the episode with Doc, is uh, when he asks his wife to tell him that he led a good a good life, and I'm like, yeah. Dustin, yeah. the room. <laughs> so, Dustin, sorry. Uh, um, what's that? Yeah, Dustin, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just um, I was going to ask. So, so then you you got rotated into running your own lift ship, yeah? I'm sorry, I missed that. Did you, after, after you were in the, uh, after that first couple days, they rotated you into running your own ship? Yeah, well, what happened was uh, I wound up becoming a lift aircraft commander three weeks later. Okay. And, and you know, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we had injured pilots, you know, from the two U's that got shot down. And they needed to get some more lift people. So I wound up going into lift. And then, I, like I said, they made me an aircraft commander three weeks later, which is pretty bizarre. You know, typically it'd be about six months before you fast. come. Yeah. A, a true battlefield promotion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess you could say that. It's more like, hey, let's throw him in and see if he floats. You know, that's really the kind of training <laughs> that you got. 
it took me on a few different missions, a couple hot lerp extractions, things like that. So there you go. You're an aircraft commander. You look good to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess the question then is, you know, we talk about the blues coming in. It wasn't always for, you know, for you. Did you ever make any unplanned landings out in the woods, either from mechanicals or as R.B. Alexander once called it, enemy-caused mechanicals? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did, but I was fortunate always enough because um, we got back to someplace safe. So that was the, the best thing, you know, they had the down, had being shot down, there's being shot down right there on the spot where you land on top of the guys that are shooting at you, and then there's being shot down where you can get far enough away from them that you're, you're reasonably safe. So that happened to me three times, but it was, like I said, we always managed, I didn't get to where I was planning on going, but I got far enough away that I wasn't in any jeopardy. You, you weren't near the people who obviously weren't very happy that you guys had just gone in and wreaked some havoc and probably don't want to talk it out when you land. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just use your words. No. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, so you ended up staying 18 months. Was that because, um, why was that? I liked what I was doing. I was good at it. And uh, the, the thing that really tipped the scales for me was that I was getting close to the end of my first tour. And uh, the squadron, well, our, our troop, troop commander came in and said you're going to go fly for the the uh, first of the ninth squadron commander and i said i don't want to fly for the first of the ninth squadron commander he says well I'm, well I'm sorry if i made that sound like i was asking you <laughs> so so i said okay well i'll show you and i said if you if you volunteered or extend your tour you got to pick your unit so I said, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trick him and I'm going to sign up for an extra six months and I'm going to stay in a troop man. And then and and I showed said, him. Oh. <laughs> and, and I'm sure he said, wow, that was very well thought out. I'm proud yeah. of you. <laughs> from, from my experience, uh, people above the, above you in the chain aren't usually, uh, too uh too nice when you outsmart them <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think i was set up actually <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they they knew who you were already they just yeah. didn't give you the right prop <laughs> oh no you decided to stay six months <laughs> <laughs> yeah i tried it again so, six months later but i was too quick for them that time <laughs> Um, actually, I want to go back one beat. Um, you mentioned that you actually tried to get on one of the lift ships on that first day that went down and you ended up on, on the scout. What was that like for you? You know, did you have thoughts about that? Like I could have been on that ship. Um, like what went? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I, I'm pretty sure that the one of the the guy the guy that I hauled back to the loach that had the head wound I think was the guy that kicked me out of that seat 
Wow. I'm not, I, I didn't, rem, I don't remember specifically, but it seems like I saw one of the guys the next day running around with his head bandaged up that was the door gunner on one of the UEs. And I, as I recall, I, I didn't recognize him. Just I'd only seen him that one time just for a couple seconds. But I think he was uh, the guy that I got uh, kicked out of the ship by. And that, so that know, was that was very coincidental. Just the randomness of everything, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, Did you so ever you get back to Flying Scout? Oh, sorry, Dave. No, go ahead. Did you ever get back to Flying Scout missions at all? Or did you stick with lift? No, I, I uh, actually, I wound up as an aircraft commander in lift and, and in weapons. I was flying B model gunships for a while. But what early on, there was, uh, it was kind of, it was kind of a, um, a freewheeling sort of outfit when I, when I got there. It got tighter as time went by. But during the first few months I was there, I would, on your days off, you could fly wherever you wanted to fly on. So I was going out and flying missions as an observer on a, on a scout ship. And we actually, we had one of our scout pilots, I think he qualified for CIB by going out with the blues. And then we got in a new change of commander says we're sending pilots out in enlisted men's spots. This is not going to ever happen again. And so that got shut down pretty quickly. But the, yeah, I did fly a few missions in scouts and I, I really, I love flying loaches. I mean, that's just, it's like a Ferrari, you know, you just, you're driving a dump truck like a Yui and then they put you in a Ferrari. I mean, who's not going to like that? Just fly, hanging it out treetop level, right? Yeah. But it wasn't much fun being an observer in, in the left seat because you're on the high side of the turns the whole day. So you've got the G-forces just pounding into the seat the whole time for, you know, like two hours straight. And you can't really see anything because you'd almost have to physically pull yourself up to the side of the aircraft to be able to look out the side. I mean, you had enough where I could, I was covering the left side of the aircraft, but really all I had to do was throw out a red smoke grenade if we took fire, somebody started shooting and then I could possibly hit something through the chin bubble if I was going to shoot through the chin bubble but I never had to do that because there was you couldn't overcome the g-forces I mean getting up and trying to shoot out the door on that side so it was a, you had to have a strong stomach to fly Oscar in a load <laughs> I can tell you that I think we've just stumbled on a new fitness craze put you in the <laughs> left seat and just fly and have you do sit-ups yeah <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the one of the um, troop rules as you cleaned up your own barf. <laughs> Didn't matter what rank you were, you puked in the helicopter, you cleaned it up yourself. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's the great evener of it all. <laughs> Go ahead, Dustin. So you extended, um, and then uh, did you get did you get any R and R with that? Did you ever rotate back to Hawaii or anything? I'm sorry, I didn't get that, Dustin. Did you, did you ever, did, did you get any R&R &R while you were there? Uh, you were there for 18 months. So yeah, you... I took one of them. I, I didn't want to leave. Yeah. It was, um, I don't, it's hard to explain. Actually, I guess I took two. I could have had four, but I took two. Mm -hmm. And 
it was like you lost your edge. You know what I mean? It's um, yeah. yeah. The first time I did it, I came back. I was very uncomfortable, and then I when I did my re up, I got thirty days home. And while I was home, my my uh, tour gunner was killed or killed in action, and two other guys I knew were killed. So um, and I didn't take any more after that. I mean, I just did the last six months not going anywhere, just staying there because it is it's too painful. I mean, it's um, if you could you know if you could just turn it off like a faucet and go and have a party and come back feeling good but it was I knew what I was coming back to and I and you had to have keep that edge you know it's like like an apocalypse with Charlie or Martin Sheen in the hotel room talking about that you know he's sitting in the hotel room getting weaker while Charlie's in the voice getting stronger and that's that's true I mean you lose your edge and it takes a little while to get it back well, and actually, let, let's talk about that for a second, because we've, we've talked about coming home with everyone, and we'll, we'll talk about that with you as well. But I think it is interesting for that 30 days that you came home. Could you really rest on that 30 days? Because like you say, you may go to a party, but you know, you know, 25, 24, 23 more days, you're going back, but also, you know, thinking about your friends over there. Like, is that truly restful to come home for 30 days? Uh, not really. I mean, it's, um, I needed it. It was like a mental health break. But the, the funny part about that was I, my parents picked me up. I was supposed to come get, I, well, first of all, when you leave Vietnam, there was no way to communicate with anybody. They put you in, in, down at uh, Benoit. And you just get the next available flight and it just comes up when it comes up. So you have no way of telling anybody when you're coming home or where. And my dad thought I was coming into McCord Air Force Base on December 24th. And I wound up in New Jersey on December 25th. They, they brought me into New Jersey and I spent uh, Christmas Eve sleeping on a pool table in Newark. And my dad was at McCord Air Force Base in California waiting for <laughs> waiting for every aircraft that came in. So that was kind of peculiar. And then I came home and they had a big banner in front of the house and stuff. That that was really nice and had a party. And then, uh, you know, like three, 30 days later, I asked them if they could take me to the airport. And they said, well, what, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to Vietnam. <laughs> and they didn't know I was going back. They, my mother thought that uh, she thought that they because it was so close to Christmas they'd let me come home early. <laughs> I said no, the army doesn't work that way. <laughs> On the plus side, so, you'll get another party next time you come home. No, I didn't. <laughs> or I was going to say, or were they like, ah, we've already done this? Yeah, yeah, I, that was, I got my party, and that was it. <laughs> I guess I didn't know if I was going to leave again, <laughs> and I tried to. So when you came home for the final time, uh, what was that experience like? You know, we've, we've been able to track it to people who came through Texas seem to have a much better experience than those who came through Berkeley. Uh, but what was your, your final, you know, both like literally arriving, but also with your family? Uh, well, I, you know, I've heard the stories about people, how, you know, how, 
veterans coming back from Vietnam. And I didn't experience that. I, the, the, I don't know what to call it. I mean, the, the shunning that I got was, was from the government because when I came home, we couldn't wear our uniforms. They had be, they wouldn't let us out into a normal air airfield or airport and, except in civilian clothes. So, I mean, there was a shame that was built into coming back by the government requiring you to not wear your uniform. And that hurt, that hurt worse than most everything. I mean, it's, um, you know, when your own government- Did they do that because they were, because they were worried about um, the protesters or why did they make that I guess. decision to have you guys for civvies? You know, huh. we, were, we were quite insulated in Vietnam from what was going on as far as protesting and stuff. So they just said, nope, you're not, they, they, they flew us back into a military base and said, you got to change into your civilian clothes before you get out of here. And then they put us on a bus wearing civvies and took us to a real airport and never explained why. And mm. so, you know, you could kind of connect the dots on it, but I, I really, I missed all of the protesting and things like that. I didn't see any of that particularly in, when I was in Vietnam, didn't know about Kent State or anything along those lines. You know, that was very, very well scrubbed out in Vietnam in the news. Well, and actually doing a, a kind of intellectual exercise for you, you know, they're telling you you can't wear your uniform. You, you don't, they're not explaining why. Uh, obviously, as you said, it's, it's making you you know, it's it's not a good experience to not be able to wear it with pride. But if they had explained it, they, as we're all assuming, it was because of the protesters. If they had explained, you can't wear it because American citizens are throwing rotten fruit. And, you know, we, as much as people try and deny it, we've met soldiers who were spit on. Um, what would, in your opinion now, would that have been better or what would that have been like for you coming home to hear that at least i would have understood why i mean it was like it it was the way they did it for me it was like a dirty little secret you know rather than just coming out and saying look there's people that are gonna attack you ridicule you and if they just said something like that so you know you need to wear civilian clothes or they should have made it optional you know if i don't i i don't care you know (laughs) I would have worn my uniform regardless. So you just got to consider what, you know, the source. Yeah. Like we say, you know, we can strongly suggest, but we're all adults. Do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Dustin. Did you, did you go back to work right away or did you hang out with your folks? What no, did you do when well, you got home? What I did was I just chilled on the, the end of my second tour because I had uh, 90 days of accrued leave because I hadn't taken any when I was in Vietnam. So I was off for 90 days and just kind of hung around. And then I, after that, I had to report to Bragg's, Fort Bragg. So they sent me to Fort Bragg, which I thought was bizarre because I was cab, you know, first cab. So I would have thought I'd go to Fort Hood. And what I found out was that I had been um, awarded a direct commission to first lieutenant 
but I it was first lieutenant infantry, and I didn't find this out until I got down to Bragg, because they, um, I I got there and they have an in processing where they ask you what you want to, they what do you want to do, and I said I don't want to do anything, and, and so, <laughs> so they put me in an aviation unit that didn't have any helicopters. <laughs> So I was there for, uh, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks. And the only thing I really did at Fort Bragg was I ran the squirrel cage at the officer's casino night. <laughs> and then I said, I, I want, no, they, oh yeah, then I went in and I said, I want to, I want to, uh, want to resign. They said, no, no, I came, first I came back, I said, I want to go back to Vietnam. And they said, well, you can't go back to Vietnam until you've been in in country, in state for for a year. I said, so. I said, well, what are my other options? And they said, well, you got this first lieutenant commission. And I said, what's that all about? I said, yeah. And then, and come to find out, they'd given me a direct commission to first lieutenant infantry. And the reason I was at Bragg was they were going to send me to infantry officer school there. And uh, I said, um, you know, I. Don't, I'm not particularly interested in going to infantry officer school and then going back to Vietnam leading like the blues. <laughs> you know, that didn't seem like a good a good idea at the time. And plus I'd lost eight months time in grade. And it was, I think it was only like $75 more a month to be a first lieutenant than a warrant. I said, well, that's stupid. They said, well, what else can I, what else can I do? I says, well, you can resign. And I said, uh, okay. So, I resigned, and um, ten days later, I was off active duty. Yeah. Because at that point, the war was starting to wind down. Had they had helicopter pilots coming out their ears anyhow, so you know they were just cutting you loose. So I just went and did my reserve time, and that was it. So you can go back to Vietnam infantry, or you can resign. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Take the deal. Yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer <laughs> to me. <laughs> I mean, way to take advantage of your 18 months of experience as a combat helicopter pilot. Like, go to infantry. (laughs) Uh, That actually leads to a question we haven't asked on the podcast, but we've asked um, throughout our years of interviewing. And um, I'll tell you the pattern that we see after I ask it, because I don't want to influence this. Um, Okay. But for you, as a helicopter crew, who do you think had it more, had a, a more dangerous job or had it, I don't want to say worse because, you know, it's combat, but would you have rather been up in the air or down on the ground? Oh, I'd, I'd rather be up in the air. I mean, even being a scout, I'd rather be up in the air. And it was, it's, that's kind of funny because I think you've heard, heard this from the blues. The blues would say the first they couldn't wait to get back on the ground. And I'd say, I couldn't even wait to get back in the air. <laughs> it's just, that's how you're wired. You know, but all the blues told me that. They were scared, dustless <laughs> when they were in the helicopters. And once they were on the ground, they were happy. And I was just the opposite. You, uh, you, you did guess the pattern. Yes, the blues will tell you <laughs> when it hit the fan, you know, you can hide behind a tree. And bullets, <laughs> a tree stop bullets, but clouds don't. But yeah. you know, when we talk exactly. to air crews, they're like, uh, yeah, we could turn and fly away <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and regroup. So, 
Um, yeah, but they were. Hey, I totally understand they that because they were packed in there like sardines. So the really the only guys on only guys on the outside had any fire or you know, could return fire when they were being shot at. And I wouldn't want to have been stuffed back in the back of one of those things like that. Yep. Um, Dustin, you want to, uh, in terms of returning home, you usually take this section. I usually do. It's true. I I'm interested in what people do with their lives. Um, how did you end up, uh, how did you end up in advertising? Well, <laughs> that's another good one. Cause I came back when I came back or got out of the army, I went on unemployment. So I was, uh, I was a helicopter pilot on unemployment that didn't have a commercial helicopter license. So there was nothing they could do with me. And uh, so I just go into unemployment every week and, you know, I'm looking for jobs and, and uh, it just happened that finally they sent me to, uh, they said, this was in Kalamazoo, Michigan, there was a company called Fuller. And they said, well, the Fuller has an opening for an advertising assistant. Go in. So I went over there and I go in and the first thing I tell them is, so I don't know what, I don't know anything about brushes and they just busted out laughing. And then the, the HR person called somebody else and had me repeat that I didn't know anything about brushes. <laughs> and come to find out full, it was fuller transmission They made truck transmissions. So <laughs> they thought that was pretty funny. And then it just so happened that the, the two guys, the two managers that were hiring, one of them was a bombardier on B-29s in World War II, and the other one was a navigator on B-24s. So I just fit right in with that group and uh, stayed there That's for great. eight years writing service manuals. I really enjoyed it, but I, did, I felt like I needed to do something more, so I started going to night school and got an associate's degree and then finally got a four-year. And so you are with two World War II veterans. Um, did you guys ever talk about your experiences between, you know, what they, did you find commonalities in the, I mean, besides the ticker tape parade that, that World War II veterans had, but just coming home from war, did you find a lot of commonalities between for World War II and for Vietnam for just as veterans? There really wasn't a lot of discussion. I think what I would say that aside from those two guys, for the first 10 years I was home, people didn't even know I'd been to Vietnam because by then there was such a stigma attached to being a Vietnam veteran that you know it just wasn't discussed. The, the, the camaraderie that I had with my two bosses was it wasn't spoken. You know, it was just the fact that both all three of us had been through some pretty ugly stuff in the wars and we never really talked about any of it in any kind of detail. It's just the fact that all three of us knew the other ones, you know, you could feel your pain. So that's kind of the way that worked. All right. So you said for about the first 10 years, was there an impetus to that you talked after 10 or was it a slow um, for you, uh, or did that put you up to the reunions in, in North Dakota, or what was your, your process to start talking about it? Well, what got things rolling that I, that uh, was actually the, the, first, the first Iraq war, 
Mm. And when everybody was coming home and everybody was being treated like a hero when they came back, you know, it was, it was kind of bittersweet because we didn't get any of that. At least I never experienced any of that, but it was still great that the American public were getting behind their servicemen and welcoming them, welcoming them home. So that kind of opened the doors as far as discussing things. But even with my own parents for years, you know, I, I was wondering why weren't, why aren't they asking me what happened? And I started writing things down, like what I, what I sent to you and what I posted on Facebook. And they said, well, we didn't think you wanted to talk about it. And I said, well, I didn't think you wanted to hear about it. So, you know, neither of us were communicating. And then that kind of opened things up to where I started talking more about it. And what was, what was that like for you to get that initial kind of bridging of the gap and finding out like, oh my gosh, someone does want to hear like a yeah, slow process, yeah. or just that first process, like it was, it was good for yeah, you or? Oh, it felt great. So like I say, all that time I'd been isolating myself from everybody else by thinking that uh, they either thought I was a baby killer or they did, didn't want to hear all the ugly stories I had to tell. And then coming to find out that they really cared about what had happened. It was, I had a friend that uh, when I was first starting to experiment with what I was calling writing my journals, and there was one one event that I was particularly ashamed of, and uh, and I fi finally I was comfortable enough with this person to let her read it because you know I just felt like I trusted her, and she wrote it. And she just broke down and cried and started hugging me, and she said that it had to be horrible for you, and I never saw it as being horrible for me. I saw it as me being ashamed of you know, what had happened to me, you know, rather than I was a subject of somebody's well, not pity, but I mean, you know, their empathy to say, oh my God, it had to be awful for you. When I was just thinking, you know, it is, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's kind of a, it's complicated. Yeah. But that does go along with what we're saying. It's not about solving problems when you talk to a veteran just empathy and you know just an ear yeah. Yeah. um have you been to any of the reunions that apache troop has done yeah i went to the the 93 reunion at uh, bart's place and uh, I, that's well actually we had an impromptu reunion when i live was living in seattle um Minimac, I don't know if you've talked to Minimac, Bill McIntosh, and come to find out he was right there in the area and Craig was there. So we just had kind of an impromptu reunion um, at, Min at Minimac's place with uh, him and Craig and Tony Cortez and some of the other guys. And that was nice. I mean, it was a nice get together. Was, there was some trauma for me because I, I had I met um, my crew chief, Kippy Gray, was killed in December of 69, and I just kind of pushed it away. I was home on leave, and, you know, he's there, and then he's gone. And it's like, it's easy to shut out that kind of situation, so I just kind of ignored it. And then 
um, Tony brought uh, an older guy over to me and said, this is Kippy's dad. And, and uh, you know, it just, it's, it's still there that I hadn't really, I had grieved about that. So anyhow, I spent the rest of the time with, with Kippy's dad and he had brought all kinds of stuff and he was, he was just totally immersed in his son. I mean, his, he had everything, all the after action reports, and everything that had to do with him. And so we went through that. We got, we got hooked up and we got pretty, pretty close. And uh, I met uh, Kippy's twin sister, Kitty. And so, his family was kind of conflicted where his mother didn't want to hear anything about it, what what was going on and and of course uh, Bumper Gray wanted to know everything about it and they so they were butting heads about that and and, uh, and then there was Kippy's twin sister wanted wanted she thought she wanted to know and his brother Sandy wanted to know and Marianne I think she's always been kind of ambivalent about it I mean she's I haven't had any contact with Marianne other than on you know we kind of trade stuff back and forth on Facebook but she's never she's always been kind of on the periphery but anyhow at the reunion it was going to be going to be Kippy's dad and Kitty and Sandy were going to come to the reunion with me and then uh, and then his dad I guess he broke his hip as I recall so he couldn't make it but Kitty and Sandy came so I went to it with them and it was it was hard I mean it was so hard yeah I just haven't been to another one since I mean that's that's the upshot of the whole thing it's just there's too much bitter to cover the suite or something like that. You know, it's it's just so hard. I've had guys want me to, to come, but I just can't do it. Yeah. yeah, they're intense gatherings. We've been to two, and uh, they're very intense. Yeah, yeah. And I've had, I know some guys that I flew with that just don't want to have communication, period. You know, I've attracts them. I think Doc was doing that a lot too. And uh, and you find guys that say, no, I just don't call me. You know, it's, they just want to totally bury it. And you got you have to respect, you know, everybody's got a different opinion on how they want to deal with the things that have happened to them. And so I respect that, you know, and other guys say just, no, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be in your time. Um, yeah. And that has surprised us when we've gone to the reunions both times. Um, there's been people there that's their first time back in contact with the troop. Uh, and it, we wouldn't have known, wouldn't have known that this was their first time talking. Um, Tony Cortez came up. Um, so we did a screening at the Museum of Flight at Boeing, and he hadn't seen some of these guys in 50 years and you wouldn't have known just fell right back in. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what would your, you know, like you said, you started talking to your parents and it, and it, it was really a good uh, 
feeling for you to know that they wanted to hear um, when a veteran is ready to talk or feels that they're ready to talk, what advice would you have for that veteran um, to, to go out and do that? Or anyone who's thinking maybe that they might want to do it? Oh, well, that's a tough one. Because everybody's different, you know, it's, I just kind of fluked into what I was doing. I think I, I would encourage just about everybody to at least write a journal you know, do some journaling and put that out in front of their families or people that they feel safe with and see what kind of response they get. And they may be really surprised. Like I was really surprised at the responses that I got. So, you know, I used to, and I was doing uh, the psych, psychological stuff for, the, for PTSD. And that's the first thing they tell you, start writing it down, you know, write it down. I said, you know, I thought big ass waste of time. So, but I finally started doing it. And then the idea is it gets it out of your head onto paper to where you can actually communicate with somebody because I, you know, it's just, there's stuff in my head that I, you know, you just start dumping on somebody. And uh, so I think that journals are really important for people that are suffering from PTSD and regardless of how they got it, you know, it's, uh, I would say it probably works for just about anybody. It's a safe way to open up communication. There's just something about that tactile feel yeah. of writing. Uh, the action, I think, is a real big part of it. Um, we talked to Dr. Clymer uh, a little bit, and he's, he said um, proactive activity was really, really important for moving through PTS, that it, that it really just like helps helps push things along um yeah, actually actually yeah. doing a thing and and for me it's a lot of rumination too because that seems i don't know it may not be right for everybody but i ruminate a lot and i feel i'm going i feel uncomfortable ruminating as much as i ruminate but that's what i do in the journals is i just keep churning and churning until uh i get it to where i think it's right yeah. I mean, I have so many of these. I think I've filled up three of these so far making the movie. And I usually have when we write screenplays, I have to write it first, even though I know I'm going to, you know, go and put it in the computer and actually start formulating. There's just something about starting with the pen and paper that, yeah. Um, even if I take it verbatim and put it into the computer, um, it's just the process. <laughs> I hear dogs. Um, uh, Dustin, do you have any? How, how are we um, doing on your I, questions? Uh, I only have two more. Uh, and they're which two parts each. To touch on, so it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good little piece, which is. Um, how how much have you talked about your experience and how how is that how have those conversations impacted you uh going forward with your day-to-day -day life beyond just the the initial with the parents yeah beyond beyond the initial conversation with your parents well it, i was like i my career is was was over 40 years in defense industry mm -hmm. and one common denominator that i found 
I, like I said, retired out of Boeing, retired out of Northrop Grumman, retired out of United Technologies. And what I've, the one common denominator for those companies and most of the other ones I know of is that they, they uh, treasure their veterans. And so I've had a lot of experience, uh, you know, being interviewed and things like that with, um, within the companies on Veterans Days. And, and so I get, I get a chap opportunity to, to, you know, air things out in front of other employees, which is nice. You know, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think the companies appreciate that too. And it's not just lip service to your veterans. It's, Hey, we got guys that have been there, done that, you know, in this company. And here's some insight for you. And I think that's a, a critical thing is to have empathy with the people that are using the equipment you, that you're making. And I'd started out on the Comanche program with Boeing Sikorsky and we were in a kickoff meeting and they're going around the room and they had all these pictures that they, they'd done paintings of all these things hanging on the wall for what the Comanche should do. And I said, you know, I, I was flying I was flying uh, 20 years ago, actually almost 30 years ago, doing these things that you're showing on the walls in here in a two and a half million dollar helicopter. And now explain to me why I need a $10 million helicopter. <laughs> so I said the focus, you know, the emphasis was on the wrong syllable. So we need to start focusing on what the, what the Army aviators couldn't do now that they should be able to do rather than we could you know more of the same. We're just doing it in a more expensive helicopter. Inflation. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, uh, our first test screening was at the the Museum of Flight. Um, technically, yeah, they're a separate entity there. from Boeing, but right there at Boeing, and it's because they do want to. I mean, it was on Veterans Day, um, and they had a lot of their employees who were veterans there, and and just want to show that commitment. Um, so that was that was a very nice event, huge huge theater. That was cool. Yeah, um, I was a, a dozen at the Museum of Flight. Uh, okay, it's a, a great place. Well, I had a little kid ask me what a dozen is, and I said, "Well, that means I work here, but they don't pay me." <laughs> <laughs> I like to say that I'm a semi-professional screenwriter as in we do it all the time but we don't get paid for it yet <laughs> you said you had a second question dustin no he answered it he answered it. i was i was wondering how um i was wondering how speaking about his experiences with uh with family and coworkers, like how it changed his relationship but it sounds like it sounds like it just uh provided an opportunity to be to be tighter with your the people you were spending time with Yep, I believe so. All right. And so I'm going to open it up to you, Glenn, for for the the last bit here. You've you've done an amazing job. Um, uh, I I look at my sheet of talking points, not questions, and it's been an amazing talk that we've had. But uh, anything yeah. that you'd want to add, or that maybe you'd, you'd want to throw in that we didn't cover, or or parting shots for the audience, uh, I open the floor for you. Um, I guess 
two things that come to mind when I was like when I was talking about when I was being interviewed at the similar interviews for at Boeing and at Northrop Grumman and one of the comments that was talking about you know how uh, how do I get into this I guess and it sounds like grandstanding <laughs> so, go ahead go for it good time it was, it was kind of like lessons to the, the, the people that are just coming into the business and then just saying, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a world where doing the wrong thing could get you killed and doing nothing could get you killed almost as fast. So, you know, you, you need to make decisions, go with it, you know, and it's, so it's, trying to keep people from being so tentative. I see a lot of people that tend to, you know, just kind of not go anyplace. You know, it's like they're, they're stuck because they can't make a decision and just do it. So that was, you know, that's the one bit of advice I had for, for younger people. That's that great was, advice. When I, I was sent to public speaking school when I was with Customs and down in, in Georgia and our final we had to give a, it was like a 10 minute speech. They took all the clocks out of the room, but they gave you a random, <laughs> random topic the night before, like end of class, here's your topic, 10 minutes tomorrow, go. And mine was on um, leadership and decision-making. And yeah. I like, oh, I got this. Cause I had a supervisor back in the port who super nice guy, loved him. But every time we asked him, you know, like, okay, what should, you know, I need, there are certain things that you can't do unless you, a supervisor says you can do it. And every single time was, I don't know, what do you normally do? Like <laughs> ask a supervisor. Like, <laughs> and so I gave the whole speech on like, hey, you just gotta make a decision as a leader. Like we can move forward and, and adjust, but if you don't make one, we're kind of boned. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just make a decision, like keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too, I guess, is one of the lessons I learned was in in-country training and in Vietnam was I was uh, playing, being in, playing, being an officer. You know, I just got my bars, and I was, and the sergeant tried to tell me what to do, and I got in a big argument about him telling me what to do, and eight months later, well, not even probably three months later. I found out what you do, what you do is you find the guys that really know what they're supposed to be doing and you fall in behind them. It doesn't really matter what rank they are. <laughs> and I remember that movie with uh, Meg Ryan where she's the medevac helicopter pilot, medical corps, and she's and she, they get shot down and she's setting up the perimeter. I said, what I would have done instead of giving orders to a bunch of grunts in your helicopter, I would have said, I'm ordering you to tell me what I need to do to stay alive. <laughs> so, yep. When I, when it's knowing it your limitations, I guess, and, and relying on the people that have the experience that you don't have. Yeah. What's the quote? Look for the guys with the mud on their boots. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, that's the way a troop was. I don't know if everybody was that way. There's no rank. I mean, and in, in our flight crews, 
we the, the only rank we everybody had detachable rank and when we had to go someplace to another base we check out the officer club and the L club and figure out which was the nicest one. And then somebody pull out the brass that they needed to get for everybody to go in. You know, it wasn't like they went off to the the old or we went to the old club and they went to the NCO club. <laughs> we all went to the same club. Yeah, I think uh, Tony Cortez told me once uh, a lieutenant. He was a, a CSM, a command sergeant major at that point, and a brand new lieutenant got mad at him for some perceived slight and he just looked at her and said i've got shoelaces that have more experience in the army than you do <laughs> yeah, so. that was the other thing i learned early was to always suck up to the first sergeant so on the minute i hit troop i went to sergeant sparacino and tried to endear myself to him because <laughs> if you need to get something done that's where you go no it's always yeah that's, that's good advice in life. Figure out who can provide and do what yeah. you need. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for, uh, for agreeing to do this and, and being so incredibly open uh, with us today. I think, um, I think people are going to respond to this quite well. And if you didn't respond to it, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to do for you. Remember. <laughs> uh, um, thanks for asking me, and I'm glad that Craig hooked us up. Yeah, this is that's been a really nice. This has been a really nice conversation, Glenn. Uh, thanks for thanks for everything you've been you, you've told us, and thanks for everything you've done. No, thanks, uh, Dustin. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.